So this morning I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about that scripture that uh, Gail just read for us. Um, we all have ambitions. We all, most of us anyway, are driven to achieve some level of greatness. Generally speaking, I think, we all have this desire within us to achieve something in our lives, a desire to improve our situation and our circumstances, a desire to achieve and even be recognized for that achievement. Striving for greatness, having ambition, are not necessarily, in and of themselves, bad things. In fact, doing great things within the boundaries of the will of God is biblical. It might even be a mandate. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. So as we think about that, the question that we have to ask ourselves is what is the driving force, the motive behind my ambition? What is the reason I desire to do great things? When I strive for greatness, who and what do I hold in my heart as the motivator and the beneficiary of those accomplishments. And our text in Mark chapter 10 explores a few of those questions. Now if you want to follow along, if you have a Bible there with you, you can open it to Mark chapter 10 and starting at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, they will mock him, and spit upon him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Now, upon hearing Jesus say that, if you had been one of the disciples there with him at that moment, what would have been your first response? If your Lord and Savior, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who you have been following for the past few years, living with, traveling with, breaking bread with, doing all manner of miracles with, day after day, if that man said to you, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and I will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn me to death. Then they'll hand me over to the Gentiles, and they will mock me and spit upon me and kill me, and then three days later I will rise again. What would be 
your immediate response to Jesus telling you that? Well, if what happens next in the 10th chapter of Mark is the way it happened, and we have no reason to believe that it didn't happen that way, then what happens next is disturbingly inappropriate. Beginning again at verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Really? Really, James and John? This is is the thing that comes into your mind first when Jesus says that he's going to be delivered unto death. See, when we read this text, we cannot help but be appalled at the incredibly inappropriate audacity of their ambition, their brashness, their insensitivity, their gall. But then when we let that sit a while and we think about it, can we honestly look at our own lives our own ambitions, our own desire to achieve, and say that we are really any more righteous? Are some of us jockeying for better position in our jobs, in other aspects of our life, in order to achieve our own glory? I know in the years of my life, as I look back, I have to honestly say that there have been times, I think of my military career in the Marine Corps, where I would question what my motives might have been. And the sit at your right hand and sit at your left hand stuff is really intriguing to me. What is that all about anyway? As we look at this passage of Scripture, does it bring to mind any other passages of text where these right-hand, left-hand positions are mentioned? See, James and John might be asking for something of temporal significance in an earthly kingdom. And they're probably even selling themselves short with their short-sighted thinking, because Jesus is speaking of something of eternal significance. But this left and right hand stuff brings to mind, to me, the image of the Passover and the upper room where Jesus broke bread with his disciples for the last time before his crucifixion. At the Last Supper, while reclining at the table, Who sat on the left and right hand sides of Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us on the right hand, what they called the place of eminence was John, the youngest, the least of the disciples. And on the left, the place of honor was the one who would share the morsel of bread, the one who would dip his bread 
in the same bowl as Jesus, Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him. Why would Judas occupy the place of honor? Is there a connection between the right and left hand positions at the Last Supper and the right and left hand positions in eternity that James and John covet so much? See, I can see the correlation with with John, the least of the disciples in terms of age and experience, the one that's often referred to as the one that Jesus loved. It makes sense to me that he would be in a place of honor when we consider all that Jesus has told us about the last being first in the kingdom. But what about the betrayer, Judas? Certainly Judas would not occupy the seat of honor in the heavenly kingdom, would he? That's somewhat troubling to think about, isn't it? See, another example of this right-hand, left-hand positioning occurs on the mountain where Jesus poured out his life for us. At Jesus' crucifixion, on his left and on his right were two criminals who were crucified with him. One that mocked him and the one that asked to be remembered when Jesus came into his kingdom. Is there, I wonder, a correlation between these two and those that are on Jesus' left and right hand at the Last Supper? And what about James and John's request to be on the left and right of Jesus in eternity? I mean, certainly we know that one criminal asked to be remembered, and Jesus told him that he would indeed be with him in paradise. But what about the one who mocked? Was he not in a position of honor to one side of Jesus? So if we go back to our text in Mark, Jesus response to James and John is amazingly restrained, I think. If we look at verse 38, it says, But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. I think that's very true. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And the response just slays me. We are able... Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. To whom is he referring there? Who are the ones for whom it has been prepared to sit at his right and left in the heavenly kingdom? Now we've generated a lot of questions here. 
and we've yet to reveal really any answers, have we? So consider this. As we look at the request of James and John, as we look at the seating arrangements at the Last Supper, as we look at the placement of the condemned at the crucifixion, there is one shining revelation of commonality. In all cases, Jesus Christ is at the center. Jesus is the center of the places of honor. Jesus' journey to the cross was as much for the criminal on the right as it was for the criminal on the left. It was as much for Judas, the betrayer, as it was for John, the least of the disciples, the one that Jesus loved. All of them occupied positions of honor because they were all loved by Christ. Now this kind of gets my mind churning a little bit, and I search for an example of something tangible in the modern day that reflects these left and right hand positions of honor on each side of a victor in the center. Now my son Freddie runs cross country. And so I started thinking about sports and about maybe the epitome of sports in our culture, the Olympics. And I started thinking about the Olympians and the second and third place finishers in the places of honor on either side of the champion. Now, to be sure, those second and third place finishers are noteworthy in their own right for obvious reasons. I mean, being second or third in the Olympics is nothing short of uh, an amazing display of athleticism. But they're noteworthy for another reason in that they are on either side of the victor. The victor's performance in that event is what gives the entire event the honor and the glory. So while the third and second place finishers are noteworthy in their own right, at the end of the day, when the flags go up, only one anthem is played. The left and right hand serve only to affirm the fact that there is but one position of true honor and glory. And that, I think, is where we find the point. I find this to be truly compelling, that the places of honor are only honorable in that they give or they get honor because of the one in the center. It reinforces to me the idea that all honor and glory are the Lord's. Without him in the center, the positions of honor are just positions, just seats around the table, just crosses on the hill. So for the criminals on the crosses next to Jesus, for the disciples 
seated on the right and left hand of Jesus at the Last Supper, even for Judas, for James and John, the sons of Zebedee, it matters not what they said or what they did or didn't do. Their honorable positions at the left and right hand of Jesus are not, nor can they ever be, honorable without the one in the middle. Whatever they achieved or didn't achieve in their lives is only remembered, is only meaningful because of Jesus. Our initial reaction to the request of James and John is not surprising. It was the same reaction the other ten disciples had. But the lesson that Jesus teaches as a result of that inappropriate request tells us how we should direct our desires for greatness and our ambition. Beginning at verse 41. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Friends, our desire to be great, our ambitions are designed by God to move us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be servant leaders. That is how we are able to accomplish those greater works than these of which Jesus spoke. But more than that, when we acknowledge the one and lift up the one at the center, the one who makes our position honorable, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because of whose we are, because of who He is and what He has done for us. When we do that, then we are indeed sitting in a place of honor, and in return we rightly and justly give it all up all the honor, all the glory to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to God the Father. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I share this. Amen. So now if you will join me, if you have a hymnal, you can open it up to 881 as we affirm our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed.
I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.